0: We're going to continue in our series on worship, and um, today is going to be a turning point in this series, and, and we're going to shift a little bit. Um, we're going to look at a, a couple different scriptures. Uh, the main one that we're going to go a little deeper in is, is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, for all the A students and overachievers that want to go ahead and flip there, uh, but we're starting. None, none of you guys in this service? <laughs> Everybody's usually like, okay, yeah, we'll do that. You guys are like, no, that's not us. <laughs> we're C students. <laughs> uh, we're gonna be in Romans start in Romans 12, 1 though. Uh, today we're gonna talk about the most powerful form of worship. I believe that that a Christian can, can take part in, the most powerful form of worship. It's the most powerful form of worship in two ways. It's the most powerful form of worship in that it is the fullness of what we can give to God, and it's the most powerful form of worship into the door that it opens for God to move in our lives and through our lives into other people's lives. It's powerful. It's the most powerful form of worship that we can take part in, but it is also one of the most rarest forms of worship, especially in modern society. And so, I, I want, as we kind of go into this, I, I want you to understand uh, that that the heart behind the message today, and I believe that the heart in, in Romans 12, 1 the heart of, of 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 God as He's teaching us in in Romans twelve, the heart of this is not at all to condemn us or to make us feel guilty for not living our lives in a certain way, but to call us to a higher place. And so as we go through this message today, you you can have two responses if you're not living your life in this way. You have two responses. You can play the victim. And you can feel self-condemned and you can let guilt play all over you and you can just feel not good enough or you can just look at it for what it is and what it is is a calling from God to go higher and to be, to be in a better place with him. And that's my heart this morning. I believe that this is the heart. Romans 12.1, this is what it says. We're talking about worship. Romans 12.1, it says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. So he says this, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercies Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Lay your bodies down. Lay your lives down to God, to Jesus. And so that first part is significant, in view of God, in view of God's mercies, in view of everything. Romans is one of the most powerful books in the Bible because Romans lays out the entirety of creation from the beginning before the fall, to sin, to what sin does to our lives, to the condemnation we face, to the law, to the powerlessness of the law, to the coming of Christ, to the cross, to to the, the satisfaction and redemption of the blood of Jesus, all the way down to the faith and believing, to being filled with the Spirit, to being sons and daughters of God, and to living for God, all the way up uh, to Romans 12. Romans 1-11 through is all that. It's who God is, and it's all that God has done in one of the most detailed, spelled-out ways. That's why some theologians call Romans uh, the Roman road, because it starts in the beginning, and it just takes you all the way through. And so Paul's writing here, he says, because of everything you read and everything you know now from Romans 1 to Romans 11, in view of God's mercy, in view of His love for you, in view of his sacrifice, in view of his greatness, his majesty, his righteousness, his perfection, who he is and all he's done in view of God, in response to who God is and what he's done, lay your lives down as living sacrifices. That's the heart of it. And if this is your first time here, or if you've been on vacation and you're not with us in this worship series, the main thing that you need to know about worship is that worship. True worship, Jesus taught in John 4 that true worship is in spirit and truth. What true worship is, is your heart's response, your internal heart's response to the truth of who God is and what he's done for you. Jesus says, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And there's something that shifted when Jesus came onto the scene, when he died for our sins, when he adopted us as sons and daughters, filled us with his spirit, that we can now take part in true worship and spirit and truth. And this is that just written in a different way. Because you know who God is, because you believe in who God is, and you know who he is and all that he's done for you in view of all that mercy, goodness, and love. Lay your bodies down, lay your lives down as living sacrifices. Now, if there was a period there, that would be, it, would, it would be great, like it would be good, we would get it, but it would be difficult for us because uh, nobody really knows what it is to be a living sacrifice. Because our culture, especially, we don't even know what sacrifices really are. We think sacrifice is like sleeping with one pillow instead of three, right? Like we just, we just live in a world where we don't really know sacrifice in, in any real deep way, especially from a religious stance. But what a sacrifice was, a sacrifice was ultimately something that you brought to God never to come back because you killed it, and you left it at the altar, and you gave it to God. It was, it was God. I know who you are, and I'm, I'm thankful for who you are, and I'm thankful for what you've done, and just as a show of this, a response to who you are, I'm coming, and I'm giving you something, and I'm leaving it, and it's for you and you alone. Just, I'm just giving it to you and never bring it back. To be a living sacrifice is almost a contradiction because a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice until it's dead. And so the reality of what it's teaching is that you are alive now in Christ, no longer dead in your sins, so that while you are living and breathing, live your life as a sacrifice, which again, preaches super good, but if there was a period, we wouldn't know really what that meant. But there's not. There's a comma, I think. I didn't do well in grammar. It's a comma, not a semicolon. Honestly, does anybody actually know how to use a semicolon? Put your hand down. Because in my autocorrect, so many times I use commas for everything. When I'm writing, comma, 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 then they'll put in a semicolon to put the little blue line, the one that's not red, so it's not super wrong, but it's kind of wrong. <laughs> and, and the reason I'm, I'm making such a funny joke about this is because in the, in the original language, there's a comma here in most of the translations, but in the original, in the original language, uh, there's actually a semicolon, which means that the words that follow this, are a direct relation to meaning that there isn't and I, everybody's going to come correct me all the english teachers please you can email terry broom at pursuitchurch.org <laughs> But this is my understanding of a semicolon based off the internet, okay? So my understanding of a semicolon is that that when you put a semicolon, that it's not just a continuation of thought, but that it is a direct response to something that was just said, it's directly connected. That sometimes it could be a, a period, but the only reason it's not a period is because it's, it is, there's no subject and some of those other fancy words that I already forgot in the next part. And so the reason that this is important is so when it says offer your bodies as living sacrifices, Holy and pleasing to God, the holy and pleasing to God is not a continuation, but an explanation of being a living sacrifice, okay? So that is theologically correct, even if it is not grammatically correct. Please don't email me. I will respond with, I'm on vacation forever. And I'll give you my dad's email address if that doesn't work. If you don't want to talk to Terry. So it might not be grammatically correct, but it's theologically correct. That being a living sacrifice in itself is being holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Your spiritual act of worship is to be living sacrifices, which is to be holy and pleasing to God. Now, the word holy, and this this is the heart of the message today. This is the heart of the message today. The most powerful form of worship that you can take place in is being holy and pleasing unto God. Now, we struggle with the word holy because a lot of us don't really know what it means. There's there's really two viewpoints, majority, there's two viewpoints of holiness. One is a a cultural viewpoint of it, and one is a religious viewpoint of it. The cultural viewpoint of holiness is that it is rules, commands, laws that are stopping you from basically doing what you want and having a good time, that that's what holiness is. Now, religious viewpoint of holiness is, is really the same, it's just they put a legalistic turn on it. That it's a list of commands and laws and and rules and regulations that you do need to follow and you should follow. And if you don't follow, then you're not holy. And so it takes holiness and it almost makes it synonymous with perfection or obedience, Now, obedience is definitely a part or connected to holiness, but holiness in itself is not obedience, and obedience just in itself is not holiness. What holiness really means, and and the reason that this is important is because there's people like me who actually want to truly live for Jesus, but am so far from perfect that I can't stand it. That one of the scriptures that I identify with the most throughout the course of my walk with Christ is Romans 7, where Paul's like, I know exactly what I should do, and that's exactly what I want to do, but every time I go to do what I should do and what I want to do, for some reason I just do something different. And I know that there's a lot of things that I shouldn't do, and I really don't want to do those things, but every time I try to go, I just wind up doing them anyway. And so when you've got the cultural view being of holiness, being a list of rules and regulations and commands, and you've got the religious mindset really being the exact same thing, and you've got this idea of perfection and just supreme, perfect obedience, and here I am going, well, I'll never be able to be a living sacrifice. But the reality of it is, is that although obedience is connected and it runs parallel and it heads the same direction, obedience is not holiness and holiness is not obedience. Holiness means to be set apart. It means to be different. It says that that God's spirit is what? Holy. It's distinct. It's different. It's set apart. It's, to be holy is to be like the Lord, not like the world. Holiness, and, and especially in connection with holiness and pleasing to God, it's this idea of you getting to a place in your life not where you, you are perfect, Holiness in the form of a spiritual act of worship is simply this, getting to a place in your heart, in your mind, in your life, when you wake up in the morning and you know because of who God is and what he's done for you, that this day you want to live for God. I want to separate my life. I'm going to set my life apart. I am no longer going to live for myself I don't wanna to live to please myself. I don't wanna live for this world. I don't wanna live for this culture. I don't wanna live for money or materials. I don't wanna live for power or fame. I don't wanna live for any, any. I wanna live for God. I wanna live for Jesus Christ. So I might not know how to do that and I might not know what to do and I might, not, I might fall and fail and mess up every day. But when I get out of bed, the reason I'm putting my feet on the floor and going about my life is ultimately that I wanna live it for God because I know that he's worthy of me to worship him and that he created me He's given me life. He's filled me with spirit. He's made me a son and a daughter, and I'm going to serve him. That's it. It's, it's setting your life aside and saying, I'm going to live for God. It's an internal spiritual act of worship. Now, that leads to life change, but that's what it is. And, and so, and I want, to, I want to be really quick, and I can't teach all this. I did a series on this just these two verses a couple years ago, and it was six weeks long, and I still wasn't finished. It's thick. There's a ton of stuff in this, but I want to make sure that you're with me on this. That it says, "In view of all that God's done, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is—His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, this is what I need you to understand about this reality." is that there's a lot of people focused on finding God's will and living it out. There's a lot of people focused on renewing your mind, and growing in the knowledge of God. There's a lot of people focused on being transformed into the image of Jesus. There's a lot of people focused on not conforming to the pattern of this world. There's a lot of people wanting to live right and wanting to do things and to focus on this, but this is what the heart of this morning especially, what I need you to know about holiness or laying your life down as living sacrifice, being holy and pleasing unto God, is that holiness, holiness precedes all of the other things. That you setting inside your heart, you setting your life aside for God, you saying in your heart and in your mind, having a real moment where you wake up and you're saying, God, I'm going to live for you. Doesn't mean I'm not going to mess up. Doesn't mean I'm not going to fail. But my life is yours because you created me. You saved me. You bought me. You redeemed me. You filled me with your spirit. I am a son. I am a daughter of the king. I will now live for you. I don't serve to be a son. I'm a son. So I serve and I'm giving you my life, and I'm living for you. When that happens, then you'll have the power to not conform to the world around you. Then you'll be able to be transformed. Then your mind will be able to be renewed, and then you'll be able to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. You're trying to find God's will and live it out, but not be holy, and that'll never happen. You're trying to get your mind renewed without being a living sacrifice, that'll never happen. You're trying to be transformed in the image of Jesus without being holy and pleasing unto God, and that'll never happen. God said it was, a, it was a broken act of worship, you remember from the first week, that opened up the door for sin to enter the world. It was a full-on act of worship of Jesus Christ, came as an offering and a sacrifice for us unto God that ended and took away sin from the world, redeemed us and took away the sting of death, and now it is a life of worship, not perfection, that God has called us to. And when we make that discernment in our heart and that spiritual act of worship becomes true, then God, it opens up the door for all these other things to happen. It's holiness being set apart, making that distinctness that God's called us to. Now, I wanna move quick to, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse eight, because I wanna show you two distinct things that, will take, that, that take place, that have to take place in our life in order for us to really lay down our lives as living sacrifices. And really lay down our lives and, and get up every morning and be holy and pleasing unto God. And none of those things are perfection. This is what it says in 2 Timothy 1. Now, this is, this is Paul writing a letter to Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a young preacher. Uh, he was a head of the church of Ephesus, which was having one of the greatest movements of God in history. And he says this, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So I want you to understand this, that what Christ did for us was he saved us. He saved us. And what he called us to was a holy life. And a holy life isn't a perfect life. A holy life is when what? Lived for Jesus Christ. It's where you decide in your heart. So there's two things, though, that he discusses as he moves into this, this, this idea of the power of God, saving us and calling us to live a holy life. He's saying, do not be ashamed Do not be ashamed to testify or the testimony of the Lord and who the Lord is and what the Lord is doing in your life. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. This is a big one for Paul. You will never be able to live your life set apart from Jesus Christ if you are ashamed of Jesus Christ. Ashamed, it's a very distinct word. Ashamed means that there is disgrace because of alignment with something or someone. Okay, so let me, let me talk to you about, maybe this is, will reveal some pride issues I have. I don't know. Maybe it will reveal some anger issues I have. I don't know. Maybe it will reveal that I don't love my kids the right way. I don't know. But I'll just tell you about a thing in my life and then you can judge me any way you feel fit. My kids are beautiful, smart, uh, amazing, angelic creatures who occasionally get possessed by the devil and lose their minds and even enjoy this happens. And, and i am tell you, it never happens more violently than when we are in public, specifically at a restaurant <laughs> eating. My wife has been gifted with some type of stress-free brain activity that Hudson could be cutting cartwheels, flipping, screaming, throwing knives at other kids in the restaurant And she is able to just press on. (laughs) I, on the other hand, die inside. My blood pressure raises, my heart comes. All I want to do is scream and hide him and put him down. And in this moment, wrong or right, because of my alignment with him, I am ashamed. I'm like, he is screaming. Everyone is looking at us. They hate us. We're ruining everyone's dinner. Why can't he put that knife down? Please stop trying. What are you trying to do? I don't understand. But while Eden, last night we went out to eat, just we do on Saturday nights. We try to just go eat something unhealthy. It's really fun and healthy. And, and Eden starts, she's, she's found her vocal box, whatever this thing is. I don't know. She screams. She, everything she wants, she screams. Even in joy, she just screams. Loud, blood-curdling screams that make you die inside. And it, I just can't even handle it. And I just cave in inside. This is, I'm not, listen, in the way way that I know that this is true, true shame, true being ashamed, because it's my connection to them. Because I can be in the same restaurant in the same setting. Someone else's kid happens and I almost have joy and pleasure. (laughs) It's not the loudness. It's the fact that they're my kids freaking out. I, when other kids start doing it, I almost want to stand up and go like, do you see that? They're horrible parents too. Everyone, (laughs) let's point and laugh at them. So, this is my heart. This is what shame is. We, we feel, when we feel disgrace in connection to something or someone that we're aligned with in life, you're not ashamed of something that you don't know. Unbelievers are not ashamed of Jesus. They do not know Jesus. They don't know the teachings of Jesus. They don't care about Jesus. It does not bother them. They have zero disgrace when it comes to Christ because they do not know Christ. Being ashamed is solely a Christian curse because we do know Jesus. And there is a reason why Paul repeatedly in multiple books, multiple times says, I am not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it has the power to save. It tells Timothy, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. For a couple verses later, he says, I am not ashamed because I know who I believe. Listen, you, you cannot be ashamed of Jesus Christ. This is the call. This is one of the, the calls to holiness, the call to a spiritual act of worship is that you cannot be ashamed of Jesus because Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe and he died for you and he saved you and he filled you with his spirit. He made you sons and daughters of his kingdom. He is your king. You cannot be ashamed of your king. Can't be ashamed of Jesus. Uh, Jesus even talks about He says, listen, I need you to understand how important this is, not just to Paul, not just to scripture, but to Jesus himself. He says that, that when you're ashamed of me before men and women, understand that you being ashamed of me now before men and women carries the exact same result in heaven. You're ashamed of me before men and women, you will find shame before God and the angels. There is something distinct and difficult here. You cannot worship a God you are ashamed of. And you cannot bow down to a God you're ashamed of. You cannot be holy and set apart for a God you're ashamed of. Listen, this, is, this is, is, is the whole, I believe, the whole of modern society is we have a ton of Christians who want the blessings of God, the salvation of God, and the favor of God, but they are ashamed to tell people about it. One of my greatest struggles, and people have left the church because of my stance on Donald Trump. And this is my only real stance. He is not Jesus Christ. He's not Jesus Christ. Listen, I know, I know, listen, now everybody clap because you're still on edge right now. Even though he ain't been president in a long time, he probably never be president again. This, is the, this was my problem with, with the way the American church reacted in this last election, is they were more passionate, more adoring, more worshipful, and put more trust in a human being than I have ever seen the American church put into Jesus Christ in my lifetime in this country. If all of those Christians who were so violently in support of the Republican Party and of Jesus Christ were that unashamed of Jesus and that proactive in their faith to Jesus, we would have international revival. And we can clap, one person can clap, that's fine. People, listen. People left the church. And because, listen, and, I, and I've said this, I don't have a problem. I don't, I, don't care. Listen, I don't care about Joe Biden. I don't care about Donald Trump. I don't care about Democrats or Republicans. This is what I know, and this is scripture. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Economies fall, economies rise. Kings come and kings go, but Jesus Christ, the word of God, endures forever. This is the reality of being a Christian, is that I don't, my faith and my peace don't rise and fall depending on sitting in the White House because the White House wasn't here 250 years ago. And the White House more than likely won't be there 250 years from now. The greatest nations in all the world, the greatest nations in all the world on average don't live past 500 years. Right? Remember eighth grade history? So this is my point when it comes to being ashamed of Jesus is that you are willing You are willing. I know there'll be people that are so, that just struggle the fact that I didn't say Donald Trump is Jesus Christ. I know it. But listen, you are so, this is the analogy. This is the point. We are so violently dedicated to the political parties, so violently dedicated to the things that we think will work on this earth, so violently dedicated to economies. So, So Oprah Winfrey, whoever our heroes are, LeBron James versus Michael Jordan, right? Even the things that don't matter. We'll go to war on Facebook with it. We will fight for it but we will never give our allegiance publicly to Jesus Christ, almost ever. We won't live for him. We'll put Trump stickers all over our cars, Biden stickers all over our cars, the political direction we think needs to go, but Christians on both sides, they're ashamed of Christ. They're ashamed of Jesus. And if we put the same hope into Jesus, and we shared that same, and we, we got the same commitment and the same dedication to Christ and the cause of Christ, we would see the world change. And this is the second reason why I use this now and why, why I do the comparison to politics because it's so happening. In our country, because of sin... Okay, sin, this is what sin does. And the Bible tells us as time goes on. One of the biggest reasons that we, we do have shame is because we we're it's difficult to be a Christian. That's why the second point here he makes is don't be afraid of suffering. Don't be afraid of difficulty. It's gonna come. In fact, join in with it. Be, be, be aware of it and be excited about it because it's gonna be difficult. He's like, people will hate you for being a Christian. People will, it will be difficult to be a Christian in the culture and in the workplace. It will be difficult. But, and, but this is how I need you to know that our shame is very real. Because we, we've, we have a fear of being publicly in love with Jesus and living our life for Jesus because we don't want people to not like us. But then we will literally, literally be okay with the world hating us because we like certain movies on Netflix or because we like certain political parties. We'll be willing to go to war with the enemy and we'll be, to be courageous for all kinds of different causes, but not Jesus. We'll go to bat for school and education. Do you know the amount of people that I've seen? I don't understand it. Some of you may just be super passionate about this. I'm sorry, but I don't understand. This math controversy of how to add two plus two Two plus two versus the two taking the ramp, put up a rock, spell it around, put it over here, take a donkey, put it up here, <laughs> equals four. Listen, I don't, I don't, if it's a common core or something like that, I don't know the difference. But the amount of hatred I have seen on Denver uh, Talk community page <laughs> over math problems, people going to war with each other. Not an exaggeration, not a joke. Someone literally said, you must be possessed by the devil because of their thought process on math. <laughs> so th- this is my thing. I'm trying to take something super eternally serious, bring make a little bit of light of it so we can get to this. My point is, is that you will make enemies and you will, you're okay with being hated for something like your belief in the way we should teach our kids to do math, but not for Jesus Christ. And in this day and age, because of sin, there is so much division. You, you make any post on Facebook, you're gonna, it could be a box of kittens, you will offend someone. <laughs> it, this is the, the world we live in. Psychology says 33, your personality, 33% of people don't like you just because of your personality. Because we all have different personalities. And you know it's true. Look, look around at the people. You're like, yeah, 30. I don't like 33% of the people in this room. I don't even like 80% of my family. This is my point is people aren't going to like you. People are going to struggle with you and life's going to be difficult. If you think anything or believe in anything, I would rather go out with my faith and my adoration public in the name of Jesus Christ than any other cause in this world. This is the most powerful act of worship. And I want to show you really fast. I want to I jump uh, to Daniel really fast because we get, we get to see a clinic in living a life of holiness when it's difficult. So really fast. In the book of Daniel, we may, we may hang out here for a week or two during this worship series, but in the book of Daniel, it's a very unique setting and time period because the people of Israel and Judah, for two, three generations, they have been deeply wicked, deeply walking away from the Lord. So, I mean, they were, they were doing things like sacrificing their children to other gods. This deep, I'm talking deep, dark wickedness. And in God's love, mercy, and patience, he warned them and warned them and warned them through multiple prophets and multiple generations. that eventually he would, as a good father does, bring discipline and rebuke to his people. It was like if, if, if my son wanted to go lay down in the road and I know that that's super dangerous, I have to do things in order to get his attention to teach him, hey, you don't lay down on the road. This is what God did. Eventually what he did, he told him, he said, I'm gonna remove you from the land that I gave you. I'm gonna remove you from the cities. There will be suffering, there'll be struggle, there'll be war, you'll be exiled into Babylon and they'll rule you for 70 years. And what God warned them about for multiple generations, exactly that happened. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most famous, powerful kings and kingdoms in history, showed up on the front door of Israel and Judah, and he took down the cities. And he took, literally, the Bible says, he took the, the most beautiful, smart, intelligent, and wise people with him. And he left all the ugly, stupid ones there. Not making it up. You should read the Bible. It's pretty funny. Okay. And so you know that this thing about Daniel is that Daniel is a, like a rocket scientist Brad Pitt, okay? This is, all of these, all of these guys, they're, they're like this. They're, they're good looking, they're smart. They're, there's something very, very different about them in, in this way because Nebuchadnezzar, what he did was he pulled the best of the best from all the nations that he took over and then he brought them together. He trained them for three years and then he used them to be his executive circle to run the whole known world. It's a brilliant plan. And part of that deal was that he took these in, these leaders, and during this three-year program, they would teach them their language and history and all this other stuff. But then every night, they would get together and they would have dinner all together, all the trainees, all the people in this program. And he did this for two reasons. One, to have multiple types of meat And to have multiple types of wine that is involved in idol worship. And he did this to pull everybody away from their different backgrounds, political backgrounds, laws and rituals and religions to bring them all together and force them solidarity and unity within in his realm. And so the part that we're about to read, this isn't like it was just, you know, a steak and some wine. And and Daniel was like, oh, no, not me. This was the, the wine was literally given to the idols. It was the king's wine given to idols. And it was, it was flesh of pigs and horses and all kinds of stuff because certain parts of society could not eat uh, any kind of cows and certain parts of society like the Hebrews did not eat pigs. They were unclean. And so that was what this was. And so as he brought them together, he basically put it together where they would all have to bend their knee to Nebuchadnezzar, to the king and to the culture and his gods rather than being holy and staying within their own, uh, their own servitude to their God. And they all bent, and they all bowed down to this, and they all took part in this, except for Daniel and his three or four close friends. And this is what Daniel says in Daniel 1.8. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And Daniel then said to to the guard, the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azaria, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So I, I want to read the whole thing because I want you to see the end. And the end is basically this. Daniel became the second most powerful person in all of Babylon and he remained there even when the Persians took over and he was second to the king for three different kings in three different kingdoms. Daniel had a resolve in his heart and he was promoted and he did more for the name of God through Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon than Israel did their entire time up to this point. And my point of sharing the whole big story with you is this, is all of that started with one moment of what the Bible calls resolve not to devile himself or resolve to be holy. And that word resolve, it literally means to set up or to place a purpose in your heart. And he was young, and he had just got there. We're talking about the first couple days. And in this moment, Daniel, as a young man, a young teenager, he made the decision. He purposed in his heart, I will be holy in this culture. I will be holy. And if I live for a day, I live for a day. If I live for a week, I live for a week. If they kill me tomorrow, so be it. But as long as God lets me live, I'm going to be holy to God. It means that I'm gonna be in this culture, but I'm not gonna be of this culture. I'm gonna be around those who serve other gods, but I will never bow my knee to other gods. He said, I have this resolve, I'm purposing in my heart. And Daniel did this for three reasons, and I wanna share these three reasons really quickly, and these will be the highlights for the next few weeks. The number one thing Daniel understood is that circumstances do not change calling. Circumstances do not change calling. You know, I, I, I work in a job and I have a career, you know, where, where being a Christian is frowned upon and it's, it, it's filled with manipulation and politics and I couldn't get ahead and all this other stuff and it's hard and there's pressure. Circumstances don't change calling. I'm in a social circle that values all these other things and I just kind of grew up with it. I'm a part of a family. Circumstances don't change calling. I want you to hear what I'm telling you right now because you need to hear me. You need to wake up a little bit, some of us. It's been very easy to be a Christian in this country for the last 200 years. It's no longer easy to be a Christian and it's becoming increasingly more difficult to be a Christian. But I need you to remember, it's important for today but it'll be even more important in the next 12 months and a couple years. The circumstances of this country does not change the calling that we have on our life. And it doesn't matter what legalized and what gets unlegalized. It doesn't matter what they press forth. It doesn't matter. When it comes to who we are as Christians, when it comes to following Christ in this fallen culture, it doesn't matter what they make legal, what they tell us we have to believe and what they tell us to do. We have to understand circumstances don't change our calling. And we have a calling to bow our knee to Jesus and Jesus alone. We can never bow our knee to this culture ever. And it's been easy to follow Christ. We're about to enter into an era and a season in American history where well, it will not be easy. And we cannot have cultural Christians. We need followers of Christ who know the calling they have on their life is to be a light in this world. He knew that circumstances didn't change calling, and he knew that there would be pressure, and he knew that there would be difficulty see there's a lot of people a lot of christians who believe that that peace is the absence of pressure it's not the absence of pressure is just the absence of pressure true peace is peace in the presence of pressure true peace is knowing that it is difficult but god's with me god's promised us victory but he never promised us victory without a fight God has promised us peace, but he never promised peace without pressure. God said that if you will bow your knee to me, that if you will resolve in your heart and purpose in your heart to be holy to me and worship me and follow me, then I will pour my favor out on you. And it might be like this. It might be like Daniel. It might be where you get promoted and God blesses you and you go on and you live and and you're, you're second in command of the kingdom and things are insanely amazing. Or he may bless you like he blessed Stephen, the first martyr who as they laid stoning him and he laid dying, praying for them, Jesus Christ parted the clouds and he got to see Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, stand in honor of him. My point is, is that God will always bless you. Faithfulness will always bring about God's favor. And Daniel knew this. And Daniel knew something that I think that we need to hold on to. Daniel knew that this resolve This resolve and this resistance and this not bowing and this being holy and worshiping God by being different, worshiping God by saying, I'm gonna live for you no matter what, worshiping God by not being ashamed. Daniel knew that when we live this way, this is what opens up the door for the power of God to move in us and through us. You will never be able to have an impact in this world unless you are living with resolve for Jesus in your heart. Resolve is what opens up the door for revival. And I want to close with this, and I know that it aggravates people, and I know that people get upset and people get mad, but I need you to understand that it broke my heart, and I know that it broke the heart of God, I know it, to see his church so passionate about politics and so passionate about people and leaders and human systems, and if we could just transfer that passion to Jesus and we could show that much reserve, that much, that much uh, passion, that much adoration, that much holiness for Christ. If we could have that much public openness and, and, and power to Jesus, that it would change the world we're living in right here and right now. We know that this world is broke with sin. Jesus is the only one that can fix that. We know that things are very wrong and broken in this country. All you gotta do is watch any news for about five seconds to have evidence of that. The only one that can fix that is Jesus Christ. We have to understand living for Christ, worshiping Christ, having a resolve in our heart to not be ashamed of Jesus, to understand the difficulty that's ahead of us, but to faithfully, faithfully, faithfully bow our knee to Jesus and Jesus alone. This is the way revival takes place in the hearts and the minds of people. You cannot be a light in the darkness if you look like the darkness. You cannot be a city on a hill if you're out lost. Christ has already saved you. He saved you. That's the power of that that scripture in Timothy. He has saved you, but he's also called you to a life of holiness. And holiness is simply waking up every day and setting your life aside and saying, today, I'm gonna live for Jesus. I'm not gonna live for myself. I'm not gonna live for this culture. I'm not going to live for materialism. I'm not going to live for power and fame. I'm not going to live to live. I'm not going to live for comfort. I'm going to live for Jesus. My life is his. He created me. He saved me. And I'm going to live for him. It's this resolve. It's this moment, this spiritual act of worship that begins to open up the door for crazy, amazing things to happen in your life and through your life. This is what we need. This is what the church needs. The church needs to believe in Jesus Christ and believe that he's called us to a life of holiness and stop being ashamed of the name of Jesus. The world's gonna hate you no matter what you do. No matter what you stand for, people will hate you. No matter what you do in life, it's gonna be difficult. Nobody's had an easy life. There's going to be issues. There's going to be struggles. What I'm saying is, let's suffer for Jesus. Let's be faithful to Jesus. Let's put our trust in Jesus. Let's be a church that says unequivocally, we will purpose in our heart to worship Christ in this society and in this culture and to follow Christ no matter how far this culture falls. We need Jesus moving in the lives of his people. Let's lay our lives down as living sacrifices. Amen? Amen. Let's stand, I'll pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, right now that you'll move, God. I pray, Lord, right here, right now in this moment, Father, that you will wake us up, Father, that you will call us, God. I pray, Lord, that you'll shake us, God, that we won't feel condemned by this, Father God, but that we will fill you calling us to a higher level, calling us, God, to a place of more effectiveness, calling us to a deeper, powerful place in you. I pray, Lord, raise up Daniels this morning, raise up Timothy's this morning, raise up Paul's, people who are not ashamed of you, people who are willing to live in this fallen culture for you. I pray, Lord God, as we take a step towards you in this way, pour out your faithfulness. We love you. We trust you. You are the king. In your holy name, amen.